Tonight, if you have your Bibles, if you'd open with me now to the book of Lamentations, chapter 3 tonight. Lamentations, chapter 3. And we are picking up this evening in the 40th verse. And as we come to the end of this book, I will not cover every single verse, but you will get the sense and the idea of exactly what we're going through here in this book. But we're going to pick up in verse 40 of chapter 3. Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We've transgressed and rebelled, and you have not pardoned. You've covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and not pitied. You have covered yourself with the cloud that prayer should not pass through. You've made us an offscoring and refuse in the midst of the people. The prophet Jeremiah was called by the Lord to proclaim a difficult and unpopular message to the nation of Israel. He rebuked them for their turning away from God in exchange for the worship of idols. And their worship services went far beyond bowing before a man-made image. Their practices included unspeakable acts of perversity and immorality and even the horrendous sacrificing of their own children to gain the favor of non-existent false gods. The Lord revealed to Jeremiah that as a result of their sin, the Babylonians would be the instrument of judgment in God's hand. They would come to Jerusalem to remove the people from their land. They would then be deported, taken away as captives. The temple where they worshiped and their capital city would both be destroyed. In addition to receiving death threats for his prophetic words, Jeremiah was hated, persecuted, slandered, ostracized, and imprisoned. Yet his words eventually came to pass. The Babylonians came in and did exactly what God said that they would do. And when the people were deported and when the city lay in ruins, Jeremiah was not rejoicing and saying, I told you so, should have listened to me. Ha, there, how do you like it now? Jeremiah didn't say any of that. Rather, amidst the destruction, he's lamenting, he's grieving, he's mourning over what could have been avoided. And in this sorrowful, record of repercussions, we find glimpses of God's grace. And we find hints of hope for the people to have the opportunity to return and be restored. It began with repentance. And that is why in verse 40, 
the exhortation is, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. There was the need for the people to actually consider their ways. How did we end up in this situation anyway? How did we get here? We didn't start out this way. This wasn't God's intention from the beginning. You could go back 800 years earlier when they came into the land. This wasn't what God said was his best for them. How did we get to this point? Let's examine our ways. Where did we veer off the path? And once they were honest enough to call it for what it was, they could be on the road back and return and be restored. You remember in the book of Haggai, in chapter 1, that Haggai said something similar to the people. He said, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and you bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord, consider your ways. In other words, the prophet's saying, listen, you want to know why you're in the situation you're in right now? Listen, look at what's going on. Ask the Lord, consider your ways. Consider where you're at. Are you walking with him? Have you departed from him? I mean, these are things that are important to consider. Here the prophet's saying, hey, let's search our hearts. Let's see. It's similar to what the psalmist said. You remember he said, search my heart, oh God. Try me. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If there's something that I'm missing, something that I've overlooked, something that I haven't repented of, something that I'm just, you know, harboring and not willing to deal with because I've justified it so much, Lord, let me consider my ways and repent of that. And that's what the Lord was calling them to do. And once there was honest examination with a clear diagnosis, they could repent and return to the Lord. And that brings us to verse 41 where he says, let us lift our hearts and our hands to give God in heaven. We have transgressed, we've rebelled, and you haven't pardoned. This lifting of the heart, followed by the lifting of the hands to God, this act of surrender and worship and repentance, there is an open acknowledgement here. We have transgressed. We, we have rebelled against God. And so let's turn our heart and let's lift our hands to God. Why do we lift our hands? For one thing, it's biblical. I will lift up my hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord, the Bible says. It is a biblical practice. It is something that is done throughout Scripture. It's this acknowledgement. It's a surrender of, of what I am and who I am. Lord, I surrender to you. I worship you. Lord, I also have my hands open. I want to receive from you, and you can take from me what you want. My life is yours. My hands raised. Well, I don't just do it because, well, I guess people raise their hands. I'm just going to... You know, why are people doing that? Maybe it's your first time here. You're a one-hander. You're a half-hander. You're a little, you know, just, you know, you're one of those people. Listen, you're a touchdown person. They say, you just, I just, I'm doing it because I'm surrendering to Jesus. And when I lift my hands, it's just, God, whatever you want to do, whatever you, I'm, I'm yours. And there's this freedom to worship God in the sanctuary. But there's an acknowledgement here in this process. You'll notice as they begin to admit that they've transgressed and rebelled, and that's really what brought them to the condition that they were in. There's something mentioned here in verse 44. They say, you've covered yourself with a cloud that prayer should not pass through. Here they are living in sin and rebelling against God, and they're wondering, well, why are my prayers being answered? It's like you're covered in the cloud. What, what's happened? 
In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 59, you remember that Isaiah said, behold, the Lord's hand isn't shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. And, and yet you're at the same time, you're saying, God, bless me. But, but you're speaking perversity, you're speaking lies, you're, you're living contrary to the word of God, but you want God to bless what you're doing when you're not doing what he blesses. Someone says, I really need prayer for our relationship. We're just really struggling. Are you married? Not yet. Are you sleeping together? Yes. I'm not going to pray for God to bless that because he's not going to bless it. Don't come up and ask for prayer for something that God's already clearly mapped out in his word. He doesn't bless that. You understand what I'm saying? Well, how come? And why isn't God? This, this is why. There's like this breaking of fellowship. Not that God can't hear. He's God. He hears everything. But if you're wanting him to respond to sin and say, God, bless what I'm doing. But all the while, listen, it's a misunderstanding. The first prayer that we should pray in that case is repent. God, forgive me. I turn from this. That's the first prayer that should be prayed. And sometimes people have prayer requests for something, but that's not really the need. The real need is what you're not saying. There's something there that you're not asking for and, and, and it's the wrong request. Now, not all the time, but sometimes. And we wonder, why? Wow, it seems like the heavens are brass as though God isn't hearing. Granted, it seems sometimes that he isn't hearing. And when we're in walking in disobedience to him as they were here, they're saying, God, it's like our prayers aren't clearing the ceiling. Now, sometimes as a Christian, when you pray, you think that. I've thought that, Lord, are you, uh, where, how come you haven't responded? Why haven't you answered yet? Have I done something wrong? Have I sinned against you? Did I do something? You know, and sometimes we, we allow the Lord to do a heart check, but, but sometimes God just doesn't answer immediately or in the way that we anticipated. And so here you find them saying, God, it seems like you're not responding. Listen, if you're, if you're, if you're, living contrary to the word of God tonight. And, and you would know what that is. Maybe if that's where you're at, hey, just repent of that sin. Turn from it. Man, the doors of, all lines are open. You know, everything just lights up. God is listening. He hears. And I'm so thankful that even though I, sometimes I think he doesn't hear, the Bible says that he hears. If we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us and that he, we have the answers that we've asked for, of him. I mean, God does hear. The Bible makes that clear to us. As you proceed, Jeremiah begins to describe in certain terms how he felt in light of what he observed around him. Remember, he had prophesied, he had said this was going to happen, and now it's happening, and all the devastation is around him. And he, he says at least three times here in verses 48, 49, and 51, he, he speaks of his eyes. Notice he says, concerning my eyes, my, verse 48, my eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. Verse 49, my eyes flow and do not cease without interruption. Verse 52, the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. Verse 51, my eyes bring suffering to my soul because of all the daughters of my city. What, what we're seeing here is, is he's observing all of these things. And when he sees the people that he loves in pain because of decisions that they've made, what does it do? It just breaks his heart. He weeps over it. He's not rejoicing over it. 
He's not happy about it. He's actually compassionate toward them. He said, God, I just can't stop crying about this. This is breaking my heart, Lord, to see what's happened. As I read that, it made me think of Jesus. I thought of Jesus, you remember, in the gospel according to Luke, the 19th chapter, Jesus is riding into the city of Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. And as he's going down Palm Sunday Road, crossing over the Kidron Valley, going back up to Jerusalem. As he's there, it says, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you'd known, even you, especially in this year day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're, they're hidden from your eyes. The days are going to come upon you when your enemies are going to build an embankment around you. They're going to surround you. They're going to close you in on every side. They're going to level you and your children with you to the ground. And they're not going to leave in you one stone upon another because you didn't know the time of your visitation. Jesus is coming into the city. He knows what's about to happen. He told his disciples, I'm going into the city. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. The third day, I'm going to rise again. This is what I'm about, what's about to happen. But he also knew prophetically what was eventually going to happen to the city. That in a matter of time, the city would be completely destroyed again. And as he, as he knew what was coming, he wept over the people. I mean, his heart was broken for the people. And every time I read that, I see Jeremiah's heart, his eyes filled with tears, Jesus weeping. I wonder, does my heart weep for people like that? Do I really have a compassionate heart for people who are headed for destruction and you can see it? I mean, do I, do I really just, am I broken over it? Do I have the heart of Jesus for people? And there are those moments, and I'm sure you've experienced it as a Christian, where the Lord just, man, it just overwhelms you. You just, it just comes on you and you just see something and you watch it go down or you, or you observe something on the television that was so, you just, just breaks you. Jesus had a heart. Jeremiah was compassionate. May God give us compassionate hearts for people who are, many of them, suffering the consequences of their sin. And, and we should pray that and have a heart of compassion to minister to them, to see them come to Christ. Je Jeremiah was genuinely concerned about his people. He didn't enjoy have to, having to be the bearer of bad tidings. He was simply being obedient to the commands of the Lord. But he was often misunderstood for that. And he was often put in harm's way. That brings us to verse 52, when Jeremiah is saying, my, my enemies, without cause, they hunted me down like a bird. They silenced my life in the pit. They threw stones at me. The waters flowed over my head. I said, I'm cut off. And I called on your name, Oh Lord, from the lowest pit, you have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from the sighing for my cry for help. You drew near on the day I called you and said, do not fear. Oh Lord, you have pleaded the case for my soul and you have redeemed my life. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 38, Israel was seeking to fight against the Babylonian invasion. And so their soldiers were armed for battle. They sought to hold off against the continual siege of Babylon. And for a season, they were successful, but eventually they were able to break through. 
But meanwhile, while they were fighting against the Babylonians trying to come into the city, Jeremiah was telling the people, just surrender. Just go over to the Babylonians and you'll live and not die. That would obviously decrease morale among the soldiers who are risking their lives to protect the city. Jeremiah is saying, guys, just give up already. Just surrender and we will live. And they're thinking, this guy is, he's, he's, he's causing us to be discouraged in the battle. And he's saying, thus saith the Lord and thus saith the Lord that. And it's exactly contrary to what they're attempting to do. So therefore the order was given to arrest Jeremiah. We need to get rid of this guy. And so they ordered to arrest him. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah 38, he was placed in a dungeon, which actually appeared to be a pit. And it says there was no water in the pit. There was only mire. And when they placed him into the pit, it says that it, he sunk down in it. Have you ever been in really deep sand or deep mud to where you, I mean, it takes some real effort to get out. That's how deep it was. There's no water. There's no food. They left him there to die. And the prophet thought that he would die in the dungeon. But the Lord moved on the heart of a man whose name was Ebed-Melech. And Ebed-Melech went and pleaded with the king, please don't let Jeremiah die in the pit. And so he was given the permission. He and 30 men with him went down and they lowered these rags and told him to put them underneath his arms. And they pulled him up out of the deep pit that he was in and his feet came unstuck and he was brought back to civilization and actually survived. And here he's saying, I called your name from the lowest pit and you heard my voice and you didn't hide your ear from me and you said to me, do not fear. You know, there are many of God's servants who have been in the pits. I mean, really down deep. I think of David's words in Psalm 40 in verse two. You remember when David said, he has also brought me up out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock. I think of the experience of Daniel. In Daniel chapter six, when all of the satraps and the wise men were determined to destroy Daniel because God had raised him up and blessed him and his ministry in the kingdom and he had favor and they were determined. But the only way they could get rid of him was to, to do something with his relationship with God. So, you know, they made, the, you know the story. They made this whole decree. They had it signed. King, nobody's going to worship anybody but you. But they knew Daniel wasn't going to listen to that. So Daniel opens his windows and he still prays and they busted him. And then they brought him down and said, King, Daniel, you know what he did? He prayed to somebody else except you, and you signed this, so you know what happens. Throw him into the pit of the lion's den. It says that Daniel was cast into the den of the lions. And then after he was there, you remember the Lord shut their mouths, and the very next day that Daniel was brought up out of the pit, and then the king, I love this part, he gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and cast them in to the den of the lions. And it says that the lions overpowered them. This is very interesting. It says that they broke all their bones in pieces before they came to the bottom of the den. 
I mean, basically, God turned what the enemy intended for evil into something good. God defended Daniel. God took him out of the lion's den, and God dealt with the enemy. Took him out of the pit. Maybe tonight, if I was to ask you, hey, how you doing? Can you describe your situation? And you'd say, if I could describe it, I feel like I'm in a, the pit. I don't know how to get out of the pit. I'm stuck. What do I do? Well, you call on the name of the Lord. You call on the name of the Lord and he will hear you and he will draw near on the day and he will say, do not fear. He, he will redeem your life. Call on him. And I love that it says from the lowest pit. It often reminds me of testimonies I've heard through the years. My own testimony, other people's testimonies, where the lowest pit, and it was there that he delivered me. Joseph also thrown into the pit more than once, into the pit, into prison. God redeemed his life. If you feel like that's where you're at tonight, listen, call upon the name of the Lord. He will redeem your life. As you go on into chapter four, we find out that he continues to describe what had happened as a result of sin and he's giving us insight into what was taking place. You notice in chapter four and verse one that he says, how the gold has become dim, how changed the fine gold, the stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street, the precious sons of Zion, valuable as fine gold. They are regarded as clay pots, the work of the hands of the potter. Even the jackals present their breasts to nurse their young, but the daughter of my people is cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the infant clings, the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies, well, now they're desolate in the streets. Those who were brought up in scarlet, now they embrace ash heaps. This is all a result of their rebellion against God. What they were at one time is completely different to what they are now. It's a devastating description that's given to us. The punishment, the consequences of what had happened to them. As you continue to proceed, it says in verse 10, things got so bad and the famine was so great that the hands of the compassionate women, they even cooked their own children, it says. And they became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. It's rather startling to read something like that. And I point that out to you. And the reason is because back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the Israelites are entering into the promised land. And God said it very clearly from the very beginning that they will receive, if they obey him, blessings. You remember the blessings and the cursings? And there would be terrible tragedies that would befall them in judgment if they rejected him and turned to idols. And one of the horrific consequences described in the siege that produced a famine, it was so severe that they turned to cannibalism. And here it was fulfilled, that prophecy of what would happen that God foretold, God's word came to pass. 
And here they are suffering the consequences of their sin. They're affected. Their children are affected. And then in verse 13, he adds, because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of the priests who shed in her midst the blood of the just. They wandered blind in the streets. They've defiled themselves with blood so that no one would touch their garments. They cried out, go away, unclean, go away, go away, don't touch us. When they fled and wandered, those among the nations said, they shall no longer dwell here. He, he points out that the prophets, the false prophets, the priests who were supposed to be the spiritual leaders, they had defiled themselves and now they're crying out, unclean, unclean, go away from us. It reminds me in the New Testament, you recall that when Jesus had come to the shores of the Sea of Galilee, that there met him a man whose name was Jairus. And his 12-year-old daughter was at the point of death. And Jairus begged Jesus, please come to my house and, and heal my daughter. She's at the point of death. And so they made their way through the crowd that was pressing in on Jesus. And in the midst of that crowd, there was a woman who for 12 years had a flow of blood. And she made her way through the crowd. And for some reason, she felt that if I can just grab hold of the hem of the garment of Jesus, I'll be clean. I'll be healed. Her whole life, she would have had to cry out because of her condition, unclean. The leper also who would be considered ceremonially, religiously separated, isolated from his family because of his condition would have to cry out at the top of his lungs, unclean, and everyone would scatter because of his uncleanness. But when those who were unclean came in contact with Jesus, they were cleansed, they were healed. They were made whole and they were restored. Again, I don't know what your testimony is, but I, I know that to live apart from him is to be unclean. Sin makes you dirty, man. It really does. In your mind, in your heart, in your actions, in your speech, the way you live, sin is a mess, <laughs> But what a difference it is. Like the leper who fell at the feet of Jesus, like the woman with the issue of blood, both severely unclean, taking hold of Jesus and being cleansed. Do you want to be clean? Take hold of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is able to cleanse us from all sin. And there's something so wonderful, something so liberating about being clean. It cleanses your heart, cleanses your mind, cleanses everything. He goes on to say in verse 17, still our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could save us. That was also part of the problem. They were looking for help, but they weren't looking for help from God. They were looking to another nation to help them. Can Egypt come down and help us? No, Babylon took care of Egypt. They can't help you. Egypt, of course, a type of the world in scripture. 
We looked for other nations to deliver us and none of them could. It wasn't until they looked to God that things changed. As you continue on, you come to chapter five. And chapter five opens and closes with imperative cries to God. In chapter five, verse one, it says, remember, Lord. In chapter five, verse 21, it says, restore us to yourself, Lord. In verse one, it says, remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Our inheritance, it's been turned over to aliens. Not like creatures in space, but it just means people who were foreigners. Our houses to foreigners. We've become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. We, we pay for water, to, we drink. Our wood comes at a price. They pursue at our heels. We labor, we don't have any rest. We, we've, we've given our hands to the Egyptians and the Syrians to be satisfied with bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Here they're saying, God, please remember us. Look at us, look what's happened to us. Foreigners have come in. They've taken what you gave us. They've taken it for themselves. We're like orphans. We got nowhere to turn. We, 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 we can't even get water without paying for it. Our own wood, we have to pay for our own wood. This is our wood. You gave it to us, but it was taken from them. We have no rest. And we bear the iniquities of our fathers. We're suffering. Servants rule over us, verse eight. There's no one to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our own lives because of the sword of, in the wilderness. Remember us, God. Hey, let me ask you something. Do you ever feel like God forgets about you? He could never forget about you. The Lord reminded his people of this. He said, can a nursing mother forget her infant? He asked the question to his people. And then the Lord said, even if she could forget I would never forget you because I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. You may think God's forgotten you, but he hasn't. I'm sure there were many people in scripture who thought God forgot about them. <laughs> I'm sure of it. Moses is like, he must have forgot until that day the Lord is burning in the bush. Talk to him. Joseph certainly thought God forgot about him. The baker did because he died, but the butler also forgot about him. I just want to be biblically accurate. I didn't want to, you know. That's the story of Joseph, if you don't know it. Um, hopefully you do. But what I'm saying is God doesn't forget about you. He remembers you. He couldn't forget about you. Remember us, God. He goes on to describe how they were feeling in the midst of their suffering. And then as you proceed, it says in verse 15, the joy of our heart has ceased and our dance is turned into mourning. The crown, it's fallen from our head. Woe to us for we have sinned. There, there's the acknowledgement right there. Listen, our joy has ceased, our dancing to mourning, the crown has fallen. Woe to us. Why? Why? Here we are at the end of Lamentations because we sinned. That's why. It's not like they're saying it's the Babylonians' fault. 
They did it to us. It's your fault, God. How could you allow this to happen? Jeremiah, you should have warned us. Uh, 40 years is not enough. I mean, no, they can't blame anybody. All they can say is, woe to us, we've sinned. And because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. Because Mount Zion is desolate, foxes walking about on it. I mean, it had been so, the land had been so leveled by the Babylonians that just wild animals just cruising around. There wasn't any habitation any longer in terms of the city being there. And in verse 19, as we come to the conclusion, it says, you, O Lord, remain forever. Your throne from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Verse 21, turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you've utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. Here it says, restore us, return. The word here used twice in this passage basically means to turn or to return. It's the most central term for repentance used throughout the book of Jeremiah for repentance and restoration. In fact, it's used 115 times. That's how frequent it is. Turn, return, consistently. I mean, in other words, if, it's, if it says it 115 times, this is God's heart. Return. Return. Come back. Let me restore you. Let me rebuild you. Let me renew you. Turn back to us, Lord, and we will be restored. I'm sure tonight that if we were to give place for people here to share what God's done in their life, how God has saved them, rescued them, and delivered them, that there would be many of us tonight who would say, God not only forgave me, God not only redeemed me, but we have a testimony that can say, God restored me. He restored me. He restored what relationships that were broken. He, he restored my mental capacity that I thought was gone. He restored me physically. I mean, I mean, there's just, that only God can do that. People can give you advice. They can counsel you. But only Jesus can, can actually restore you. You can hear some good things and boy, that's something I could take away. And that's, but Jesus is the one that restores the broken. Jesus is the one who restores he alone. Say, I want to be restored. Turn back to him. If you find yourself like the nation of Israel, wandering away, and the heavens seem like 
They're not open to your cries and the joy of your heart has ceased and your dance has turned to mourning because you recognize, I've, you know what? I actually have sinned. I have been just kind of going on and then return to the Lord and as you do, you will be restored. Renew our days as of old. And I'll tell you something. I believe this is, this is a word, this whole turning back to us and we'll be restored. This is a word for our nation. This is what we need to do. This is, this is what, and I'll add to that. I think that the church needs to turn back to the Lord also. I really feel that way. And the Lord's been making me more and more aware of that. As I look at my own life, I, I, with other places and other beliefs, I just realized, Lord, we, we need to get back to you so that you can restore us. And he does. Anybody been restored by Jesus? Anybody? Had anything restored? Okay. So just if you didn't think he could do it, you saw. He does. He does. And he continues to do it. Father, we thank you tonight that, Lord, we can have confidence in you Lord, your throne remains forever and ever and and you are seated there in control. You know exactly what you're doing with us and with our lives. Lord, as we look at our nation today, Lord, we see division. We see so many things going on. But Lord, we know as the people of God, we we need to turn back to you. Lord, the church of Jesus Christ turning back to you. Individuals, turning back to you so that you can restore and renew and even rebuild what's been torn down. And tonight, Lord, we want to, as we read, turn our hands towards you, our hearts towards you, and just say, God, just search us tonight. Examine us. Lord, if there's something we're overlooking not wanting to see, or that we know is there. Lord, I pray tonight that we would do just that. So as we close this evening, Lord, just by worshiping you, Lord, would you meet us here? God, would you just draw us into your presence tonight? God, forgive us where we've slipped, or we've tripped, where we've turned. God, just... Set things right tonight. Let's just worship the Lord and end this evening. Just bringing those things to him this evening. Whatever that is, let's worship him. And I'll close this in prayer a little bit.